From WNET in New York, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our programs. Today, we conclude our two-part look at a major multi-platform initiative called The Talk, Race in America. Our guest today is an award-winning director and producer whose long career in film includes many public media projects. Sam Pollard is the talk's director. Sam, welcome to WNAT Up Next. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure to be here today. I'd like to start off with the actual expression, the talk. What do we understand the talk to mean? Is that actually one thing, or are there several different definitions of what that is? Well, the talk, in terms of uh, how it relates to the show, is a, the common conversation that the parents in communities of color have with their children, specifically their sons, about how they should react if they're ever stopped by the police. You know, say yes, sir, say no, sir, don't talk back, don't do any, make any sudden moves. Those are the kind of conversations that parents have with their children, specifically sons again, so, you know, they don't become harmed if they interact with the police. Is that something that has been going on for a long, long time, that, that, it, that talk? It's a conversation that has happened in many households of color for many, many years. You know, and it's become much more of a discussion with the incidents that we've seen in the last few years with, uh, you know, Tamir Rice and, and Mike Brown and other sure. incidents around the country. Now, this, this film actually tells many different stories, really primarily, I think, six stories by different filmmakers. Could you tell us a little bit about where we are in those six stories and, and how you chose those stories to tell? Where we're trying to take a sort of an overview and look at the issues, some of the stories of young people who have been involved with the police. We try to look at it from the police perspective also to get an understanding of how the police is dealing with these issues in different places around the country. So one of the stories looks at uh, the horrific incident of Tamir Rice who yes. was killed in Cleveland. We spend time with his mother, Samaria Rice, who takes us through the story of what happened to her son and the response from the community. We do a story with the South Carolina Police Academy where we spoke to police officers who have been in, in policing for many years and recruits who are becoming police officers. And we watch how they're learning how to interact with communities, you know, mm -hmm. how to deal with communities in a way that can be safe for the communities and safe for the police. I want to ask you about the Tamir Rice story a little bit and also about the, uh, the Oscar Ramirez, the, the Latino boy in Los Angeles who was also shot by police. The families seem incredibly open to you as filmmakers to express their personal tragedies. What was that experience like as a filmmaker to engage them in that process? Well, both Samaria Rice and both the Ramirez family, they wanted to open up to the filmmakers. You know, they wanted to talk to the filmmakers. Uh, the two filmmakers, Eric Parker and One Nine, and uh, they felt that this was an, a way for them to sort of exercise the demons and the emotions that they've been carrying around and that they wanted the public to hear their stories and to understand what happened to, in the case of Samaria, her son, in the case of the Ramirez family, Oscar Ramirez, you know, a young man in his early 20s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the one of the wonderful challenges with making documentary film is to be able to engage with your subjects and to have your subjects trust you 
And in this case, the subjects trust those two filmmakers really with with their emotions and their lives. It's very deep. It's yeah. very it's very yeah. emotional. Have have they had a chance to see the final film? Uh, I don't think they have yet. Yeah. I don't yeah. think they have yet. Wondered we, what their reactions would be. Yeah, I think they'll feel that we did justice to their stories and to their families. One of the other things I noticed in, in going through the film, there is so much footage based on police dash cams and also security footage and how this has become such a force for really discovering the truth about events and also the way you use it in the film. Could you comment on that? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing that we live in a culture now where everything is being documented, everything is being photographed. And uh, I think it's good for the people like the, the, the Rice family. I think it's good for the Ramirez family. But the police... For some people, for the police, it's also an important thing. Some of the police officers in the South Carolina story, they say they welcome the idea that there's dash cameras because they want to be able to have, you know, us see what happens when they're out there in the, in the field. So it's a, it can be both a good thing and a bad thing from whatever perspective you want to look at it from. No, I was thinking about, I think it's the third major story, is uh, a Catherine Brown, who is a community activist in Chicago. And this is an incredible story, much of it uh, captured by police cam and, and security cam. Could you tell us about that one? In many ways, it, it probably saved her from having to spend a lot of time in, in jail. Absolutely. Here's a, a woman who has uh, come from buying some pampers for her daughter. She has her daughters in the back of her car. She's trying to drive down an alleyway to get back to her house. She's confronted by a police car. The police car basically said, why do you have your bright lights on? She turns them off. They come over to her car, and they have their dash cam on. They ask her for information. She realizes that this is a sort of an intense situation. She calls 911, basically saying she feels she's being harassed by the police. Mm-hmm. They challenge her. They demand that she gets out of her car. She realizes that things are, might go awfully wrong here. She backs her car out onto the street where there's another camera. The police follow her, and basically they, they drag this poor woman out of her car in front of her children, and they beat her. But they had charged her with, and also with attempted murder and of one they, of the police officers. They charged officers. her with attempted murder, and thankfully, the video cameras show that that wasn't the case. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it is but I was thinking how, how pervasive that dash cam film is yeah. uh, in, in all of them, in the, even in the uh, Tamir Rice as well. Sam, I felt that there was so much attention paid to the new kind of activism that was stimulated by tragedies, including something I believe called the Ethics Project with uh, Christy Griffin, uh, which I guess essentially that was an outgrowth of, uh, of Ferguson. Can you reflect a little bit about that one? I really applaud what she, what she has done. You know, after the Mike Brown incident in Ferguson, she put together a group called Parent to Parent where... Parents of color went out to talk to communities of white families and white parents to, so that they could understand what communities of color have to deal with every day in having their children, their sons and their daughters interact with police. And they took a group to Memphis to meet some white families and white parents. And one of the families that they took was the family of this young man who was killed in Jersey. His father, Muhammad, who had raised his son in sort of a middle-class life, said he felt that he should have had to talk with his son. He thought that he didn't have to have the talk anymore, and he was upset that he hasn't. You know, and his son was tragically killed. Muhammad is in that audience while his stepmother, the young man's stepmother, is telling the story about what happened to their son. 
So it was a very powerful, powerful sort of setting. And it was one of the shoots that I went on. So I was actually there when they were talking to the audience. And I was directing one of the cameras. You know? And their son was Abdul. Yeah, oh, son on. Abdul. It was, it was a horrible, horrible time for them, you know. Christy, she's trying to be very proactive. You know, she's trying to mend the divide that we constantly see in America now, both in from a racial perspective and from a social and political perspective, looking at what this, this past election period. So she's trying to mend that divide. And she's a very warm and open open lady who who is really doing some phenomenal work. How did you actually find her? We started to think about the stories we wanted to tell. We would reach out to the people. We would talk to them. We would see if there's a story that has, we could do a deep dive into. Mm-hmm. And that's how we found the ethics project. We were searching and searching, and we found this ethics project story. And we reached out to Christy Griffin, and we talked to her, and we still thought this could be a story. And we found some, some old audio and video, and we thought this could be a story that would be powerful. Toward the end of the piece, there's a multicultural family in Oakland, California, who seem to encapsulate so many of these issues. Uh, It's a Muslim family. The the husband is black. The woman is originally from South America, I believe. They have an adorable son, and they are trying to, you know, raise him in, in their best possible way. Can you talk a little bit about them? I thought that they were... Again, they seem to encapsulate so much of not just the, the idea of the talk, but the whole idea of race in America and, and our, our melting pot and how we all struggle to find our place. Yeah, you know, it's, it's such a unique family. The husband, Abdul, is African-American. His wife, Nancy, is a Latina, and they're both Muslims. And, you know, that in itself is unique. And they have this beautiful son, Zaire. And that whole story is about letting their son understand what it means to be a young person of color but having dreams that he should be able to fulfill. And in his case, he tells us in the film he wants to be a police officer. And they don't dissuade him from wanting to be a police officer. They tell him he should want to be a police officer. He should want to do something for his community. But they should understand that as a person of color, he will have to deal sometimes with things that may be negative in aspects. You know, so his father takes him to a rally, you know, and takes him to the, in front of the police officer. And the mother's terribly frightened. Yeah. They have him go into classes where they learn about Black Lives Matter. So this is a very proactive family that understands that they're American. This is one thing, this is the important thing to understand, that even though they're Muslims, they're Americans. Absolutely. And they're Americans first. And they're also a couple of color who want their son to understand what it means to be a person of color in America and what it means to be an American, which is very powerful to me. It's a very powerful story. And, and like all parents... You feel so strongly how they want the best, the best for, for, for their son. Exactly. Whatever that is. Exactly. You, you've told me a little bit about it already, but tell me about your role in all of this uh, uh, and your collaboration with the segment producers. What do you really do as the director of a film like this? Well, I'm both the director and the supervising producer. And part of my responsibility was to you know, harness the vision of the overall show, the two-hour show, and to, with Julie Anderson, bring in the directors that we brought in and to get them on board in terms of everybody trying to be in sync about what we're trying to say in telling these stories. So we brought in a variety of different filmmakers who we thought could understand where we were going in the trajectory, Mm -hmm. and they would be in sync. But the important thing that we said to every one of these directors was that when you went out there and you spoke and you interviewed these people and you shot your footage, 
you want the audience to understand the importance of the talk, the talk, be it Samaria Rice, did she talk to her son? Did the Ramirez family have the talk with Oscar? Did Zaire's family talk with him? So it's important. We we felt it was important. All the filmmakers understand that that was sort of the theme. It's like the kernel. Yeah, that they had to make sure that they mined. As but I think it's good to point out, though, that the talk is sort of a stepping off point for the entire issue of, of race in America. You cover so many different aspects of it from that kernel of, it, of the talk. It's a huge dialogue, and we felt that this is a dialogue that uh, that hopefully it'll start a, a massive conversation and continue the conversation all over America. So, Sam, what led you to this uh, specific project, the talk, Race in America? Well, you know, the answer to that question, Tom, goes back almost 30 years. Back in uh, 1979, 1980, I had an opportunity to work with a filmmaker named St. Clair Bowen, a documentary filmmaker, who was doing a piece for public television about the blues in Chicago. From, like, 1974 on, I had sort of seen St. Clair on the periphery. You know, I saw he was this dynamic African-American documentary filmmaker who spoke truth to power all the time and sometimes shook up the shook the rafters and kind of frightened me because I had thought at the early age of my 20s that as a person of color, I wanted to be really become absorbed in the American melting pot and not deal with films that dealt with African-American experience. I didn't want to, I wanted to stay away from that. But in working with Saint over the six months that we did on that first film about blues in Chicago and having long talks with him after the editing sessions and going out for drinks and stuff or food, he made me understand that as a person of color, as an African-American man, that I had a responsibility to tell our stories. It's important to tell our stories and that our stories are, the, are part of the fabric of America. And from that point on, from 1980 on, I felt a huge responsibility on my shoulders to be involved with documentaries, be it about people like Langston Hughes or doing films about Rise and Fall of Jim Crow or Eyes on the Prize that spoke to the African-American experience, which I always make sure to say is a part of, is the American experience. So anytime I can come, become involved in, a, in some film, some documentary film that speaks to that, I want to be involved. And so when Julie and Steven Segalari approached me about working on the talk, there was no question. I had to be involved in this project. And how long did this take to get uh, from the idea to... to the in terms of making documentaries, it was pretty fast. We started, uh, we started talks, I think we started talks in the spring or late early summer of 2015. Mm-hmm. And we started the actual pre-production part of the process in October, November 2015. So under two years. Yeah, yeah. it really happened Which is, fast. as you say, fast for a documentary film. <laughs> it's fast. It's fast. And we just kept rolling. Do you feel that this is a project that could only have been undertaken uh, by public media? I personally think it is. I mean, I think this is what makes public media so important, that they have the opportunity and the avenues to deal with stories like this in a much more in-depth way than we're going to see on some cable news show or CBS or NBC. PBS has always had this responsibility, which they've taken on wholeheartedly through my many years of experience at public television. 
Well, and I know you have a great public television background. It dates back to the early 70s. You were an apprentice here at a WNET-sponsored film training workshop. That's how I got my start. Tom. And you have done so many different things stepping off from that. Tell me a little bit about where that early training has taken you, and maybe more how you got there. What propelled you to want to be a filmmaker? Well, you know, quite honestly, I was going to Baruch College in New York City and majoring in business, and I was a junior and I was miserable. Mm -hmm. And one day I went to see my college counselor and I said I was looking for some after-school activity to take my mind off of these horrible marketing and statistics classes. And she asked me, what are you interested in? And I said, quite honestly, I love reading books and I love old movies. So she said, you know, that Channel 13 in 1968 started a program to get more people of color behind the camera, in the editing room, producing, writing scripts, doing sound. It's a one-year program. You go two nights a week. They have professionals come in and teach you how to make television and make film. And Tom, my initial reaction was, <laughs> I don't really care about how they make film or television. I just, <laughs> I just like watching it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but she was very persuasive, and she got me to have an interview with a wonderful woman named Peggy Penn, who used to be at Channel 13. It was around the time of Black Journal. Um, Tony Brown. Tony Brown, Bill Greaves. And uh, I had an interview, and I got accepted in the program. I did the one year. I made little short films with other people in the class. And at the end of the year, they tried to find you a job. And they found me a job on a low-budget feature film that had a predominantly black crew. And the editor was a, a white Jewish gentleman, and he hired me. And that was the beginning of my career. So really, that taking that step changed, changed, changed your, my whole changed, life, changed your life, the trajectory of my life. And you have done so many different things. I know that even in terms of public media, you worked on three to one contact, which always <laughs> to me that was like one of the most <laughs> fun, fun public television programs that I can remember. That you, must have been an awful lot of fun to you, work on. You've done your research, Tom. Yeah. In 1979, I was on three to one contact as one of seven editors, and then I came back in 1986. When 3 to one Contact had another season, and I worked on that season. Yeah. And, you know, I worked on um, a bunch of American Masters with, under Susan Lacey, John Ford, John Wayne, Marvin Gaye, Zora Neale Hurston. And Anna DeVere Smith, I know you were responsible for uh, filming her. Fires in the Mirror. So I've done a lot of PBS in my years. Okay. A lot of PBS. What, what are the lessons learned along the way? You know, the, the important thing for me in my experience of PBS is that it— basically said to me the importance of making documentary, the importance of telling true stories, the stories that could have, you know, speak to truth. And uh, I personally, as an editor and as a producer-director over the years, this has been the avenue where I felt I could open up and I could speak truth to power. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of commercial stuff too, but working in the PBS system has always been very gratifying for me. I didn't want to leave out Spike Lee because I know you, you did well, a Well, Spike Lee is that, that the other part of my career right. where in the late 80s and early 90s, after I had worked as a producer on Eyes on the Prize 2, which is also PBS, I got hired by Spike Lee to edit uh, his third feature film, Mo Better Blues, mm -hmm. with Denzel. And then I went on to edit Jungle Fever and Clockers and Girl 6 and Bamboozled and... Then we did the documentary Four Little Girls for HBO. They got nominated for Academy Award. So that was the other career where, 
In the 90s, I was editing a lot of feature films and trying to figure out, do I want to stay in feature films or do I want to go back and work primarily in documentaries? And quite honestly, after my initial experience at um, NET in the early 70s, documentary has been my passion. That, that's your place. That's yeah. your spot. I know you teach film also. And I teach film at New York University for the last 20 years. And I teach documentary. Was there a turning point where you went from editorial look at things to becoming a producer and a director? Like a lot of editors in New York City who are documentary editors, we all feel like we make the films. Sure, of course. <laughs> That's where it all happens you know, in the editing And uh, the big difference was, Tom, was that we didn't go out and really actually shoot the interviews or shoot the verite footage. So in 1986, as I was doing my second tour on 321 Contact, okay. I had the young assistant named Meredith Woods who came to me one day and said, uh, do you know that series Eyes on the Prize? I said, absolutely, I know the series. It just came out to tremendous success. She said, the company that's doing that series, Blackside, in Boston, they're getting ready to do Eyes on the Prize too, And they're looking for producer-directors. Are you interested? And it took me about maybe two or three minutes to kind of run it around in my head. And I said, you know, yeah, I think I am interested. I want to give it a shot. So she got me in contact with the executive producer, Henry Hampton, and I went to Boston, had a meeting, and uh, a week later, he hired me to be a producer, initially producer, editor on mm-hmm. Eyes on, on two segments on Eyes on the Prize 2. And uh, I said to myself, well, now I'm going to show these producers how to produce. <laughs> and I have to tell you, in all honesty, Tom, that it was, a, <laughs> it, was a, it was an eye-opening experience because all of a sudden, when I'm out there in the field with my questions, interviewing people and trying to get the answers, I realize, really, it's hard to be a producer. <laughs> <laughs> a, new, a new appreciation. It was a new appreciation. But you still loved editing. That still is so I much still, a big part of your I process. I still loved editing. You know, and I say to people, I just love filmmaking. I love all aspects of the process. I love the editing part. I love the research part. I love the interview part. I love being in the field. I love the struggle sometimes in the edit room to make the story come to life. You know, I love the collaboration or sometimes tension between collaborators. I love I love film. I just love making film and I love making television. It's uh I always feel ecstatic after the experience. Now, sometimes I'm frustrated, sometimes I'm upset, sometimes I don't get my way, but I understand that's part of the game. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. What's up next uh, for you? I'm almost finished with another PBS documentary for American Masters about Sammy Davis Jr. Oh, fabulous. That will probably premiere sometime next year in 2018. Great. And I have another documentary that's going to be an independent lens sometime in the fall, I think. It's about an organization called ACORN that I co-directed with another young filmmaker. We just got accepted to the Tribeca Film Festival. That's for 2017. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. And, and thanks so much for spending time with us today. It's My great. pleasure, Tom. And we hope that you will share your questions and comments with us at upnext at WNET.org. And of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is presented by the Design and On Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart, and thanks for listening.